Recovery Elevator, Episode 9. You know, I'd have a day off from my job. Yeah, you'd get up in the morning and start having a beer at 10, 10.30 in the morning. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app available on iTunes and the Google Play platforms, I have been sober seven months, one week, seven hours, three minutes, and 45 seconds. In today's podcast, I'm going to discuss six ways to start taking action before you really start taking action in early sobriety. What this basically means is before you can start working and giving your time for a 12-step program or volunteering, you first have to meet a good physical and mental state yourself before you can apply yourself to really taking action with helping others. I also have Tom on the podcast who is my new sobriety accountability partner because he has four more days of sobriety than myself. And I am a competitive guy, but that's a race I don't want to win. Tom, I hope you always have four more days of sobriety than I do. Remember that one guy who says, you need to get outside your comfort zone in drinking, and a relapse happens way before you take that first drink. Yeah, that's this guy. At the end of this podcast, after the interview, I'll tell you about my almost near relapse, where I was way too far outside my comfort zone. But first, let's take some action. In case of an emergency, place oxygen mask on yourself before placing it on young ones next to you. I'd always wondered about that. Why not put the oxygen mask on the kid or your child next to you before yourself? Well, that's the same thing in early recovery. I've always heard, take action. You know, and, and what does that mean? Start, start a nonprofit? Start kickboxing? And the reason I bring up the oxygen mask metaphor because it's the exact same thing. Before you can really help anybody on that airplane, you first need to be wearing that oxygen mask and be in the best mental and physical state before you can really start taking action. And let's figure out how you can do just that. Two words that come to mind in early sobriety, especially the first 72 hours, week 24 hours, are daunting and mundane. Following these steps will help you get through these daunting and mundane moments that you will face in early sobriety. Simply not taking a drink in the first week or early sobriety is not enough. You need to be occupied and stay busy. This list of six things in early recovery might seem basic, but they are quintessential. Ready for it? Here we go. Wake up. Set your alarm clock across the room every morning. This will be establishing a rhythm and a routine. What I mean by rhythm is your circadian sleep rhythms have been way out of whack due to so many nights going to bed blacked out or drunk. Your body will naturally be restoring these rhythms if you wake up at the same time every day. So simply wake up when your alarm goes off, put your two feet on the ground, and the second thing you're going to do right after you wake up is you're going to pray. Now, I'm not going to tell you who to pray to. It could be to that lovely oak tree outside your window, but you've got to ask help from a higher power. Next up, tell yourself something positive. You hear at the end of all of my podcast episodes, I say, you can do this. I told myself that exact same tidbit of inspiration every single morning, and I did it this morning when I woke up. I said, Paul, you can do this. Number three is eat. Work on preparing three to four healthy meals a day. Prepare your breakfast. When I would wake up hungover, I would just pour cereal and milk and just eat total crap. Make a healthy breakfast with oatmeal, with berries, make a smoothie, make a juice, 
anything, eat healthy, and take time doing this. You will be investing valuable time in these nutrients that your brain has been deprived of for a very long time. Eat healthy, prepare three meals a day, and take your time doing it. And in later podcast episodes, we will have a topic about the ideal diet for early sobriety. The fact is, in early sobriety, your body is still lacking valuable nutrients that you deprived your body of while you were drinking for so long. Don't worry about the amount, but just eat a lot of healthy food. Your body is going to need healthy calories. Number four, after eating this delicious breakfast with vitamins, with minerals, with valuable antioxidants that your body has been lacking for the last however long you've been drinking, clean. Clean the dish. If you're like me in early sobriety, your sink was full of dishes. Clean every single one of those with soap. Scrub them down. Put them in the dishwasher if you have them. But clean after yourself. Go back to your bedroom. Make your bed. Be proud of making your bed. You've probably got stuff lying all around the house that's been neglected. Start cleaning. You need to make your side of your house and your life clean. Number five, exercise. Now, this does not mean running a 5K, a 10K, half marathon within your first 30 days of sobriety, and this will look different for everybody, but it could be as simple as this. Go for a walk for five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. If you can handle it, start moving your legs faster. We call that jogging. Go around the block. It is beautiful outside. Focus on that stuff. Breathe in the fresh air, but get exercise. This has been scientifically proven to release those happy endorphins inside your brain. So get out and do exercise. I started by running one mile and then two and then three and then four. And now in seven months of sobriety, I'll do a five mile run and it feels great. But before really taking action in my workouts, I jogged for one mile. Number six, stay busy with healthy tasks. Go to a meeting, work on your 12-step program, anything that keeps you occupied and not thinking about that first drink. If you're anything like me, when you were drinking, you didn't answer the phone all that often or respond to emails or respond to text. Start reaching out back to people. Respond to those text calls and emails that have been neglected for so long. Walk to your mailbox, your P.O. box. Check the mail. Send a letter. There are so many healthy projects... There are so many healthy projects that you can do in early sobriety to keep your mind off drinking. I recently discovered a website called DIYPete.com. This will be on the Recovery Elevator show notes page. And it's basically this guy, Pete, that shows you step-by-step how to build cool projects with your hands. You have a tangible item at the end of these projects that you can put around your house. It's really cool stuff and it's free. Check it out. Most importantly, you need to take little action before you can really start taking that big action. Now let's summarize what we just talked about. Number one, wake up at the same time every day, set a schedule, don't sleep in, get up before 8 a.m., 9 a.m., 7 a.m., whatever you want, just get up. Number two, pray, meditate, put your feet on the floor, knees on the ground, however you want to do it, reach out to that higher power or meditate. Number three, Eat healthy foods and start replacing your body with valuable nutrition and vitamins. Number four, clean. Vacuum, mop, clean your dishes, clean your driveway, get your house clean. Number five, exercise. Get your heart rate above 80 to 90 to 100 beats per minute. 
your body will thank you for it. Number six, do healthy projects and stay busy. Now, let's hear from Tom. And Recovery Elevator, I am excited to welcome Tom to the podcast. How are you, Tom? I am great today, Paul. Thanks for asking. Yeah, let's just get right into it. How long have you been sober? Exactly 196 days. 196 days, which is three days more than me. Congratulations, Tom. We we are like blood brothers almost, I feel. This is <laughs> I awesome. I know it. I know it. That's that's wonderful that we uh, and we got this together to actually do this. But uh, and congratulations to you too. Because, yeah, thank you. Uh, it, it's a process. And let's talk about the podcast title, Tom. Tell me when your mm-hmm. elevator had reached its bottom and you were done drinking. Apparently, you know, 196 days ago. Tell me about that moment. You know, it's the second time I've stopped. This is number two, and uh, I like to say this is the one. This is the one for good. What happened on uh, September 2nd last year, um, I was, uh, I was, you know, drinking, you know, the day before and I'd actually popped a couple of pain pills for my back because I've had back issues over the years and something about the, and by the way, taking the pain pills, not just for, you know, my back, but maybe my hangover as well. And the reaction between the Vicodin, and this is in, in my opinion, and the vodka I had before in that night just started a reaction in my body. You know, on September 2nd, there was no drinking that day. There was those pain pills in the morning, but I, was, I remember I was mowing my lawn that day, and I actually got manic about it because I felt like my heart was going to burst out of my chest. I really felt like I was going to die, and, and, and it was kind of, it was, it was a bottom because you know, I never really thought I was afraid of death so much. But that day, and, and, and you know what I mean, you know, we get it, our squirrel cage starts going in our heads, in my mm-hmm. head, in this case, you know, and there's the regret from drinking. And it's like, you know, for, for, for months, even years, I looked at myself in the mirror and said, you know, I really don't want to die drunk or even hang over. I, I really didn't, you know. And that went on for six years, you know, look in the mirror. And it's like that thing we we hear about, you know, I wanted to quit. And I quit drinking how many thousands of times and always picked it up again. But that morning, there was something about the combination, the feeling I had of remorse, regret, feeling I was going to die. And it went on all day long, Paul. Mm -hmm. I mean, from 10 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock that night. And finally, I sat down. I got this blood pressure monitor and I stuck it on my, my arm. And my blood pressure was like 280 over 150 or something like that, which I later found out wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was so high. You know, my pulse was like uh, 120, mm-hmm. which the doctor, because I took myself to the hospital that night. I actually had my wife drive me. I, said, I looked at my wife and I said, I said, honey, I got to stop drinking again. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I saw that look on her face. You know, she just bowed her head and said, oh that bad, huh? And she drove me to the ER and dropped me off. And I just checked myself in to get checked out. You know, words don't do it justice, Paul, but it's really interesting. <laughs> I, I Like, I made a confession even to the nurses. I got to stop drinking. I made a confession to the ER doctor that came in and said, I really think this is 
alcohol-induced. And, of course, he went through all that, those questionings. And you know what? I, I recovered pretty well. My heart rate went, went down. My um, my pulse rate went down by by 11.30 midnight. You know, very well I could have taken up drinking the next day. Because this isn't the first time. It was like the third time it happened in about three years, this sort of situation. But frankly, I was over it. I was just simply over it. And it's like the moment I made that decision, and actually I texted a friend of mine uh, who's in, you know, 88. I texted him and said, you know what? I'm going back to meetings tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I've known this guy for 30 years. He's been a really close friend of mine. And he just texted me back and said, really? <laughs> yeah. Like, a, like an exclamation point and a question mark. Yeah. Like he knew. He knew all this time, and he never asked me or pushed me to get back in, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, he knew, and I knew, too, but uh, but but I made the decision to do it, and it took me two days to get back to a meeting, by the way. <laughs> sure. Because uh, that's, you know, I, I, I didn't have time. I was working, and I didn't drink, just went back and did it. So that's, that's kind of my, 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 my bottom story, you know. I don't know if you can put a title to it, Paul. But it was it was certainly a, a seminal moment for me. Absolutely. And Tom, a lot of times listeners imagine bottoms being a fiery car wrecks, financial ruin, yeah. divorce. Yeah. And it doesn't have to end that nope. way. And it sounds like in the hospital, you were ready. And it sounds like you told the nurse, you texted a friend. And what you created right there, in my opinion, for what I'm listening from you, is accountability. There was something different that time yeah. that you were yeah. you were ready to make a change. And, and talk to me about yeah. accountability. I mean, is that why you texted your friend? So, I mean, he could yeah. hold you accountable? Oh, yeah. Think? Well, precisely. It was, he knew, you know, he'd been in the program, you know, uh, for you know, 35 years, 30, 32 years or something like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I always, I always admired him for, for, for that, but, um, um, but yeah, yeah, I, I needed to do it to him. And you know what? Part of me really didn't want to do it. Part of me went, you know, I, I mean, and, and part of me wanted to do that for so long, but I was embarrassed mm-hmm. because, you know, for, for, I think a lot of us, for me, I thought, you know, I can do this via willpower. Oh yeah. I, I couldn't do it via willpower. There was a certain amount of grace that happened in that moment, you know, and, you know, in the step program, you know, I, I, I'm convinced they did the first three steps that evening, right then and there, right with, within, you know, within 15 minutes, I did three steps. And it sounds like at that very moment, you opened up your heart and your mind to a higher power, which is something that I am currently de- not, not yeah. grappling with, but trying, mm-hmm. you know, to conceptualize it myself. So yeah. talk to me about your drinking habits. Have you ever tried to control or, or to regulate your drinking? For example, switch from hard alcohol to only beer, not drink before a certain time of the afternoon. I mean, tell me about that stuff before <laughs> September 2nd. Oh, hell yes. Hell yes. I, I switched on a regular basis and, and more just, you know, kind of a weird sort of self-medication to, uh, to give my stomach a break from one substance and let it go into another substance sure. and then go to another. St- so really, you know, the cycle would go from strong beer and I drink that eight, 9% beer. You know, I do a six pack a day of that. Well, in the afternoon and, you know, that's typically, and then, you know, and then probably have some wine. You know, I, I then then I go to wine, I go to red wine, loved red wine, and I drink wine for a couple of days, 
you know, I'd be drinking red wine. I'd go through one of those boxes of those those boxes of wine they sell. I'd go through a box of that in a day for crying out loud. When we think about uh, how much it was, and then some, yeah. and then after that, you know, I get tired of the wine, and then uh, I'd move to vodka, buy a half gallon of vodka, and drink that for a couple of days. Drain that, then go back to beer or wine again, and then to go back and forth. And, oh, did I mention Mike's Hearts? I was starting, you know, that process of uh, must have been a couple of years ago. You know, I'd have a day off from my job. Yeah, I'd get up in the morning and start having a beer at ten, ten thirty in the morning. And then I have a Mike's Hard. You know, it became my favorite noon drink. I'd have those uh, those bottles, those those water bottles from REI that hold about uh, you know a little over a quart. I would dump two Mike's Hards in there and drive around with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I drive down and, and you know and I'd switch stores because you know. I, you know, I didn't want the clerks to think that I was coming in there every day and think I was an alcoholic. No, go oh God, no. And we've all done that. <laughs> you were not, not the oh, yeah. only one. Yeah, sometimes I drive 12 miles out of town just to buy that half gallon of vodka because I figured I bought too much at one store and go to another one. But the answer, can you hear your question? The reason it got bad, the reason, you know, it not the reason. It got to the point where, you know what, I was drinking all day long. You know, I'd cover night shifts at my business for my staff. And I'd go through two bottles of wine at night mm-hmm. at my shift. I was what they call a functional alcoholic. Sure. And I think one of the things I thought about on September 2nd, I said, how long can I remain a functional alcoholic? And the thing is, Paul, I didn't want to find out. I certainly didn't want to find out because, uh, you know, I was going to work, you know, and, some, and then it became drinking in the morning. I'd wake up with the shakes. Mm-hmm. Never had DTs. Never, never had the, the, the luxury, if you want to say it, yeah. of going through that. But I would wake up, you know, and then within an hour, you know, I couldn't hold my hand straight. I couldn't sign a check without shaking. Mm-hmm. So I'd have, you know, a glass or two of wine in the morning before I went to work. You know, Mike's heart by 10 o'clock, 1030. You know, when you get out of work, you know, since I'm self-employed, I could leave when I wanted to. And, and the first thing I do at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning is have another glass of wine or a beer or I start hitting the vodka, depending upon where I was. And you've already said a couple words, the justification of it. You know, I'm self-employed. It's, it's, it's my day off. I should have a drink at 10.30 in the morning. Or, and the word functioning alcoholic. Tom, when I was age 23, I was owning a bar in Granada, Spain, blacking out seven nights a week. And there were times when I'd wake up in the morning. And, and no joke, I would wake up and be like, oh my goodness, I don't even think I shut the front door. I, I can imagine, mm-hmm. you know, Spaniards just running in and taking all the alcohol yeah. and, and gypsies and flamenco artists, you know, thing, things like that in the bar. And, and I would show up in the afternoon to do the order, literally mm-hmm. hands over my eyes. I'd walk around the corner and the door would be shut. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd unlock it and I'd go in and the bar stools would be on the bar. The register would yeah. be counted to the euro cent, the correct order place. And I thought it was cool. I was like, oh man, this is awesome. I can, I can, I can do this, you know, blacked out. But in reality, exactly. that, I mean, how long can you keep that up? And, and I found, you know, know, not long at all. So talk to me about how has your drinking impacted your relationships with, with, with possibly family, friends, a spouse, and has anybody ever suggested perhaps you might drink too much? Yeah, you know, that's what interesting. about the only person that really knew I was, I was, and to this day, God bless my wife. She has no idea. And I've tried to explain it to her, but I just realized, you know, I've made, you know, uh, some amends to her, you know, over the, the last couple of months for some things, but she knew I drank. Mm-hmm. Hell, she'd be buying the wine for me. 
You know, I don't think I'd call her an enabler as much. She'd buy the stuff on sale when it was. You know, hell, there were two boxes of that, uh, that, that wine out in the garage when I stopped. But let's talk about friends. Friends really never knew it. Friends knew I liked to drink. Mm-hmm. But I never got sloppy with them. I never did crazy things with them. I never swore. I just, I just start fading away. I'd sneak out, you know, to get home because then I really wanted to get serious about my drinking later on in the oh, evening. Yeah. Didn't want, I didn't want to show it to them. Uh, at work, for example, you know, towards the end, I'm sure my staff suspected. Didn't abuse my staff. Didn't, you know, because I needed them. And so, yeah, I was afraid. I, I'd sneak drinks down in my shop for crying out loud. You know, I go down and drink up a half a can of mics, you know. Did I suspect? Yeah, I think they did. Matter of fact, uh, about a month after I stopped, you know, I shared a little bit with my uh, one of my head uh, employees, and she said, you know, I thought I, I, I saw something different in you. So they knew. Now, with my family, my close family, you know, my wife knew, my kids knew. You know, I've been drinking around my kids, you know, for ever since they were born. And I know there's an impact. I've had a lot of issues with my kids in the last uh, couple of months because I've reached a new homeostasis. And they knew me as the guy, as the dad. I could cook them breakfast in the morning. I'd be cooking them dinner. You know, but I'd be drunk, yeah, functional. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd be the dad who would be falling asleep on the sofa, you know, at 10 o'clock, 10.30. Don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. So they got this new dad that actually sits down and talks to them now, and they don't know what to think of me sometimes. <laughs> Honest to God, they don't. But, you know, it's getting better. My, my son got pissed off at me because uh, before I stopped drinking, we started brewing some beer together. And now that I quit drinking, he's pissed at me because I can't taste his beer. <laughs> or I won't taste it. Sure? I choose not not that I get. And, yeah, my wife's noticed the fact that uh, I'm a lot calmer. You see, so, I, so I'm saying what's what's now is much that they, they, they're liking the newer me versus what I was before. I wasn't really present. I kind of operated my own cotton padded room, emotionless. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the relationships are much richer now with everybody, with my staff, my, my close friends, you know, and my family. So uh, I don't want to answer your question or not, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm grateful not to have lost my business. I'm grateful not to have got a DUI or killed somebody or killed any of my family when I was drinking and driving. And believe me, I, I did that a lot. Mm-hmm. Tom, it sounds like you finally just hit the button and got off your elevator before it kept going down. And and that's what so many people can't do. So congratulations. And and Tom, tell me what it was like when you first quit drinking. What were the first 24 hours like? The first week and, and the first month and, and, and the first six months. What is that like? You know what? It, it's a really good question, Paul, because you know, the first 24, 72 hours weren't so bad because I made I was kind of floating on that decision. It wasn't so bad. I tell you, the first time going into a meeting was was tough for me. And talking to a whole group of people and then telling them why I was there, you know, that was like accountability again. And once I got over that hump, that was okay. You know, they talk about this, um, this uh, what, rose-colored cloud? A pink cloud. Pink cloud <laughs> is what they call it. You got it. You know, I, I'm convinced for the first couple of months, I was kind of on that, uh, that kind of... Uh, that kind of trip, so to speak. 
But I got to tell you, the compulsion and the desire didn't go away. All right. It, it wasn't terrible. It wasn't comfortable either. It wasn't comfortable. As a matter of fact, I got to tell you, after I reached the six month mark, I don't know why. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I'm going through some challenges in my business. And, uh, you know, one of the things I talked to one of my mentors about is that now that I'm more fully awake and engaged, mm-hmm. I've actually got more stuff coming into my brain. You know, I'm, I'm literally dealing with things in the same fashion now. And so I can sense the pressure even in a greater fashion. And so it's even this afternoon, like we were talking before the interview started about what I'm going through right now. You know, I had a real desire to just sit down and, and set into those old patterns again, even today. And so uh, um, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I don't know when that's going to stop, but my commitment is to get through each 24-hour period, <laughs> you know, get through, get to bed. Take it one day at a time, and I think what you're describing is is I had a filter, and, you know, about three months into sobriety, I realized I could start taking on tasks that were in projects. Yeah. You know, I'll walk outside my front door and, and see a gutter that needs to be moved, and then I'm the one that's going to do that task. But in, so when I was drinking, yeah. you know, simply putting on shoes and, and making breakfast, lunch, and dinner were, were the biggest tasks that I could handle on my plate. And, yeah. and listeners, I highly encourage in the first year of sobriety, do not make any large changes, you know, moves, job changes, leave a relationship, right. get into no. a relationship. But you and I, Tom, I think we've made a lot of really small changes. You know, you're, you're a business yeah. owner and I am an entrepreneur mm-hmm. as well. And I think that's what's happening. Do you, do you agree a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I know on some people have literally not worked for the first half a year and done very little as far as changes go. You know, and for me, I don't know about you, I didn't have that luxury because my business still needs me. Mm-hmm. What I discovered is how far behind I got. I'm still cleaning up, you know, the tasks I didn't get done, the procrastination, one of my defects of character, so to speak. Sure. You know, my, my sloth, I guess you could call it, is, is coming forward. I got to deal with it, honestly. Let, let me sum up a quick conversation we had before I started hitting yeah. record. I said, hey, Tom, how are you doing? And, and Tom goes, you know, I'm, I'm installing a new customer management system in my hotel. And, and that, even for a sober, normal person, would be a monumental task. And you're taking this on in six months of sobriety, Tom. That's that's incredible. Yeah. But no wonder it's it's a tough day that, yeah, a, a Mike's Hard Lemonade might make that process a little easier. Yeah, so I understand that completely. I know where I'd go if I did. And that's, that's one of the reminders, you know, is that one of the things I always do is I take the inventory. I said, I don't romance the situation anymore, Paul. I, I don't romance the idea of, yeah, I can have just one. No. I know because this second time around that I'd be back again. It would start slowly. And then I'd be back to square one and, I, and maybe even faster this time. So, yeah, you know, it's a little painful, but it's like a workout sometimes. You know, metaphors like going to the gym. You know, it, it's a little bit of uncomfortability here. And um, and I got to tell you, when I wake up in the morning refreshed and not dealing with a hangover, I am really grateful for that. And Tom, I'm a competitive guy, but this is a race that I don't want to win with you. I want you to always have five days extra sobriety than me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> All right. Yeah. I'm going to pull you. 
I'm going to pull you with me. Accountability. You are now my official accountability partner for everybody to hear right now. So, and Tom, we yeah. have reached the lightning round with some quick responses. Yep. So well, yep. here we go. What was holding you back from quitting drinking? I really, I like it. I, I like the buzz. I got to, I got to admit, I like that feeling. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to let that go. And actually the other thing that's holding me back is just what I'm doing right today. Doing the things I need to do. I was procrastinating because I knew I had to do it. And I said, you know, it was easier to, to, to you know, chug the half a gallon, gallon of vodka than it was to do the work to say, oh, I got tomorrow. I got mm -hmm. tomorrow. I got tomorrow. And Tom, what was your aha moment or when the light bulb went off and you finally had the courage to quit drinking? I want to go back to something I said. I really think it was grace. You know, you mentioned higher power. You know, I, I, I've never doubted that there is a God or a higher power. I haven't dealt with my God or my higher power very much. And I really believe that once I decided, made that decision, that I was truly powerless over alcohol. That's what gave me the courage to make that admission. Mm. I'm powerless over alcohol. I, I can't handle it. Just and that admission gave me that power. What is your favorite resource in your recovery? Right now, it's uh, it's meetings. It's meetings in AA. I, I, I think that some of the most wisest people are in that, those rooms. Um, I hear so many good things that I can relate to. And that's also a place that I can share my journey. And so it's, it's a give and take. I don't think I could do it, you know, without that group. Might be different for other people. I don't know about them. For me, right now, it's the AA meetings. Tom, what's the best piece of advice in regards to drinking and sobriety you've ever received? You know, talking with my mentor and sponsor a couple months ago, we talked a lot about this. And you mentioned it, is that everybody has a bottom. Everybody has a different bottom. Mine's not uh, going to a treatment center or waking up in a jail cell, although I did that once when I was younger. It's hmm. another story. But um, the recovery, this recovery is mine and mine alone. I experience the same emotions everybody else does with this problem of alcohol. It's just that my outward manifestation of that isn't the same as somebody else who went through it maybe 10 times to stop. Mine happened to be twice. And like I said, I was a functional alcoholic. But the whole process is mine. I don't compare myself to other people's journeys. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? You know, I think the, the, the big fear that a lot of people have is, what am I going to do without my drink? How can I live life? How can I enjoy it? And all I got to say is there is life and, and, and love and enjoyment and a tremendous amount of, of uh, after the drink. It's there. Uh, you know, sunsets are more beautiful. Sunrises are gorgeous. Every day is brighter. Um, got to experience it. It's there. But there is a life without the alcohol. There's something about a Montana sunrise while being sober that you just can't top it. And it's incredible. I, I got to say thank you for, for A, joining us, and B, you are helping me stay sober. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for letting me uh, share with you, Paul. It's, uh, it's been great. Let me tell you about this near relapse, or whatever you may call it, but it was way too close of a call. I was in Brazil, and a friend of mine emailed me from Buenos Aires and said, hey, you should come down and visit me. We found a really cheap flight. I went down there for two nights, and one of the nights was my birthday. The very first night, she picked me up. 
and I had met her one year previously on a similar trip in the north of Argentina, and I was shit-faced the entire time. When I came out of the terminal, I didn't recognize her, and I started to ask her the exact same questions over and over, and she even said, Paul, you know all this stuff already, and I was like, damn it, alcohol, you're still kicking my ass. Anyways, she purchased my favorite drink, which she thought was Fernet Cola, it's an Argentinian drink, and that night, I had to tell her, hey, I don't drink anymore. I thought I made it pretty clear. I said, I am an alcoholic, and she was totally cool with it, completely fine. We just went right past it. Now, the next night, it was my birthday, and we ate dinner at this sleek, cool, Argentinian, upscale, hipster Mexican restaurant. There was a DJ playing beats in the background. It was a really cool setting right on a river in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And when the waiter came up to us to ask what we could drink, my friend got a Corona, which is what you're supposed to order in a Mexican restaurant, and I'm happy she did. The waiter looked at me and said, a Corona for you too, sir? Tim and I said, no, I'll just take a water. And my friend across the table, who the previous night I had just told her I was an alcoholic, she goes, Paul, it's your birthday. You got to have at least one beer on your birthday. Bless her heart. She's not trying to get me to relapse or drink with her. She just doesn't really understand the disease of addiction. I wasn't angry at her. So I looked left and I saw mojitos. I saw margaritas with salted rims. I looked right. I saw the DJ bobbing his head. I saw other beers on table. I saw Dos Equis. It all looked so right and normal. And for a split second, I almost ordered a Corona. But then something happened. I ordered a water. And here's where it somewhere got heated, which ended up being a complete misunderstanding. They both go, a water? No, 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 don't order a water. And I thought they were still trying to convince me to order a damn Corona. But what it was, was you still got to pay for the bottle of water. It's not like America where you just get free water. They were saying, no, get a Diet Pepsi, get a cola, get a soda, anything you want. Just don't get a bottled water. But I didn't get that till later. And here's the spoken words after I was feeling pressured to drink. I looked up at the waiter and I said, does this restaurant not have water? He got it. He briskly wrote something down on his pad and he walked away. Now those were the spoken words. Let me tell you the unspoken words. So I said, does this restaurant not have water? Spoken. Unspoken. You mother cock piece of fuck shit. I can't do drink. I'll go through that same. You get the point. I don't need to keep going. We cleared it up, and afterward, the girl was like, Paul, is is everything okay? And then we talked for another couple hours about how I was an alcoholic, and it ended up being a fantastic bonding experience. And we're even closer friends after the whole scenario. In summary, I made it back to America without drinking after two weeks of being out of the country. I'm currently in Vegas recording this podcast at a podcast convention, and I'm going to make it back without drinking, but I am taking it one day at a time. A quick anecdote about the NMX convention. Bless your heart, Cassandra. They had the welcoming expo party night at a pool party, and you get two free drink tickets. In Vegas, it's hard enough to stay sober in this damn city. Don't make it harder than it already is. I went to the bar, which you get two free drink tickets, and I said, I'll just have a water, and I pushed my ticket across the table, and the bartender's like, no, this is only for tequila. It's $8 for a glass of water. I've saved a lot of money from not drinking. I'm happy to pay for $8 for water. But I just asked. I said, come on, I can't, I just get a glass of water. Can you give me a cup and I'll go, and I'll go fill it up for the drinking fountain? He's like, no, man, it's not my rules. So I asked the manager and it just kept going up from there. 
And actually, after about 15 minutes, a woman named Cassandra came back with a bottle of water. Bless your heart, Cassandra. I stayed sober. Thank you very much. Recovery Elevator, this is my last podcast on the road. I cannot wait to be back in the beautiful Big Sky State, Montana. And check out recoveryelevator.com. Kelly will write an amazing blog post that mirrors this podcast about how to take action in early recovery. You took the elevator down. You got to take the stairs back up. Paul, you can do this.